welcome. You're listening to Season 2 of But Seriously, What is Engineering? A podcast series from the University of Queensland where we explore all corners of engineering. We'll be covering a range of specialisations and exciting engineering careers through our special guests with an aim to open your eyes to just one more part of the wide world of engineering by the time this episode is finished. Spoiler alert, it's not just about bridges and buildings. This episode is hosted by two of the University of Queensland's Women in Engineering student leaders. I'm Lizzie and I'm in my fourth year of a dual major in Civil and Geotechnical Engineering. I'm Christy, I'm in my final year of a dual degree of Civil Engineering and Commerce majoring in Finance. Today we'll be talking to Ella Hingston. Ella is a Senior Asset Management Engineer in Cardinal. In her role at Cardinal, she works across the water supply and sewerage, stormwater, buildings and transport sector to maximise the value provided by infrastructure assets to governments and the communities they serve. Ella has assisted local, state and federal government clients across Australia with understanding the current state of their asset base, forecasting and providing assurance on current and future investment needs, and developing supporting asset management framework documentation. Welcome to the podcast, Ella. Thanks, Lucy. Now, for those that aren't aware of what asset management is, that introduction could be quite difficult to process. So can you <laughs> explain what this means and how you were first introduced to the world of asset management? So before we can define asset management, we, can prob we probably need to define what an asset actually is. So an asset is anything that provides value. And in our context, we're usually talking about physical assets. So the roads, bridges and buildings you see, the water mains you don't see, or even the equipment on a mine site that keeps it operational. In our um, consultancy, we usually work with government teams or government clients. So for us, assets usually means infrastructure assets. Something else I'd like to pull out of that definition is the creation of value. Value means different things to different people. If we take the example of a water main, the value to the community or the customer is the receipt of water of an appropriate quality, reliability, pressure and flow, and at the lowest cost. But if we consider what value may mean for the board of a water utility, value might mean delivering appropriate services at the lowest life cycle cost and with an appropriate risk profile. So one of the commonalities that you can see here in this perception of value is that in asset management, we often boil down asset management value to the optimization of risk, cost and performance of assets. In asset management, we bring together all the disciplines of an organisation, so not just engineering, but also finance, IT, human resources, and lots of other disciplines. And we look at the whole life cycle of the asset, from planning to disposal, and through that, we look to optimise the cost, risk and performance of the asset. I think in terms of how I actually got involved in asset management, it's not really something that you get exposed to at university, although the engineering skills that you develop are no doubt very, very useful for asset management. I was lucky to, to start a cadetship at Brisbane City Council while I was studying, and that was after my second year at university. And I happened to fall into an asset management rotation for my first rotation. So that was in the strategic asset management team at Brisbane City Council. I then went uh, through rotations in the structural asset services team and the stormwater asset management team. 
And really without that experience, I never would have known about the world of asset management and I never would have been in the world of asset management. So since then, I've came to Cardno after I graduated as a graduate asset management engineer. Um, and then since then, I've become a, a senior asset management engineer where I still maintain a, a technical role, but I've also come to manage people um, and projects as well. So I think with asset management, the big thing here is that you're taking a life cycle perspective and you're also linking it to the needs of the community. So when you do an engineering degree, um, you can often get lost in the detail of say designing a beam or a car park, but ultimately these assets serve a purpose and doing asset management helps you to get that holistic perspective and actually put meaning to what you're doing. Sounds like that rotation you did at uh, Brisbane City Council was a very valuable experience and really sort of set you on your career path. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's probably a key message there is like um, for people to actually go out and get as much work experience as they can, because it's all really theoretical at university until very you start so. yeah, getting yeah. into the workforce. Can you maybe explain to our listeners what a cadetship is versus maybe what an internship is? It was probably a, a nuance of um, BCC's terminology in a way. So it was very similar to an internship. So it was paid. Um, there was full-time work during the university vacations and part-time work during the semester. Um, I suppose in some ways it was more structured. So you had the rotational program and you also had learning and development courses that they would put the cadets through. So it, it was similar to an internship, but perhaps with just more structure and more uh, learning and development courses built into it as well. So you've said what you've done after uni, so how you um, got to where you are now, but what actually drew you to engineering in the first place? So in high school, I did a lot of the subjects that you typically associate with engineering. So maths B, maths C, if you still call it that, um, and then the free science subjects as well. So biology, chemistry and physics. And what drew me to those subjects was my curiosity about the world around me, my need to understand that, and also my desire to problem solve. But I guess interestingly, um, I was also interested in subjects like English and music. And I think those subjects are often overlooked because that's where you can develop uh, some of your critical thinking, creativity um, and communication skills. And at the end of the day, if the ultimate aim of engineering is to solve problems for communities, there's little use in having problem solving abilities unless you can actually articulate how you solve that problem and what need you're meeting. I think from early on, I had an interest in a wide range of subjects and multifaceted and multidisciplinary areas. And I brought that with me into the engineering degree. So I started with the flexible first year program at UQ. And throughout the degree, I also sought to incorporate other electives such as microeconomics, um, environmental planning and, and asset management alongside my core civil engineering subjects. So I think like the, the takeaway that I was starting to, to grasp over my time studying engineering and afterwards in the workforce was that engineering isn't just about maths and science. It's about understanding the world you live in, being curious about the world you live in, and also being able to communicate and engage with people. So I think for anyone who might be listening here, just because maybe you're not necessarily interested in just maths and science, but you may be interested in some other subjects, and that still means that engineering may be the career for you. Yeah, I think there's definitely a big misconception that, you know, maths and science have to be your passion. That's exactly what you do. You have to be excel at that, and I suppose, um, having you might be really good at English or music and 
drama, things like that, would you say that's definitely very valuable and can be put to use in the engineering field? Oh, oh definitely. Um, because we, we kind of, we do have this misconception, I suppose, when you go into the workforce that it's going to be drawings and plans and designs and calculations. But a lot of this can be done um, either by other roles or by even computers these days. So the, the value that humans provide is, is in communication, it's in understanding, it's having empathy for others. And that's where those other subjects really come to play. Particularly in like a management role and in asset management specifically, how much of your time do you think you spend talking to clients or talking to your team or just, yeah, you know, communicating with people in general? It's definitely increased a lot probably in the last two years. So sometimes when I look at my calendar and it's just absolutely stacked and <laughs> to be honest, sometimes there's not as much time for technical work in between those meetings these days. Um, it's probably hard to put a number to it, but definitely on particular days, you could spend most of your day talking to the, the people around you or talking to clients. So I think that's a, it's a really good mix to get to, but it's also something that's different for each person. So someone may be definitely really comfortable um, performing calculations on, on a day-to-day -day basis or they may want to get out there and talk and it's completely up to the individual. So from your experiences you've had at uni as well as in the workforce, would you recommend this career path to high school students and any engineering students listening? Definitely. So the, the great thing about asset management is that you're working at the intersection of engineering, finance and technology. So the biggest thing here is that you're actually having multiple careers in the space of one. And you also get to work across multiple sectors. So I guess recently, I mean, I've done water projects, but then before that I've done roads projects, I've done buildings projects. So you're never really constrained to one job in your career if you work in a career of asset management. I think another appealing factor is that you get to look at the whole life cycle of an asset. So in university, you're mainly exposed to things like planning, design and construction. But in asset management, you first need to understand the need for the asset, which is often linked to what the community needs. And then you look at the life cycle as a whole. As a whole. And that's something that's definitely getting more and more prominence in the industry, where we're starting to adopt life cycle perspectives more and more. Sustainability is becoming more and more important for organisations to consider. And I think asset management really is at the precipice of that, because not many other careers can give you that holistic perspective Something else that I think might be appealing to some of your listeners is that as we get uh, an influx of technologies such as machine learning and robotics and the increased ability um, of computers to, to perform the tasks that humans used to do, there's going to be a greater value in humans being able to think strategically, think critically and make decisions because that's something that the computers won't be able to do. So with all those factors considered, I think there's going to be a greater demand for the asset management discipline. And I think I would definitely recommend um, that any of your listeners consider a career in asset management. Adding on to that, would you, did you just do a straight degree of civil engineering? Yeah, I did do a straight civil engineering degree. So I actually didn't do a, a dual degree. And it, it didn't hamper me as such because you're still able to learn a lot of those concepts on the job. So you're still able to learn a lot of finance concepts or business concepts on the job. But we are seeing like more and more graduates come into our organisation with dual degrees. So dual degrees with business, commerce, finance. And I think it's really useful for them to be able to combine the, the theories gained from those dual degrees and then apply it in the workforce. If you were going back to uni now, would you have done a dual degree yourself? 
I would, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I would definitely consider it. Um, the, the extra time frame probably would be my, my main um, factor to consider in, in doing that. Um, but I would definitely try to incorporate as many electives as, as possible where I could um, from a, a dual degree as such. Yeah, you mentioned that you work in multidisciplinary areas quite a lot. Was there a particular challenge that you faced that stood out to you or a like, career highlight that you achieved that you're really proud of? Well, one of the career highlights for me to date was last year when I was shortlisted for the Queensland Young Professional Engineer of the Year Award. And I didn't win it, but it was just a really, really humbling experience just to be shortlisted and just to be around that group of amazing young engineers who are also up there. It, it also helped, well, inspire me and build my confidence um, because I'm sure like a lot of people in the first 10 or so years of their career, like I've had feelings of imposter syndrome. I've sometimes thought, do I belong here? <laughs> but when you're surrounded by people who have 10, 20 years more experience than you and sometimes you're one of the very few women in the room as well, it can sometimes feel like you, you don't belong. Having that, that short listing, it, it just made me stop and think, hey, I've actually kind of achieved a little bit in my career today and I've got something to be proud of. And it, it kind of forced me to reflect on what I'd actually done. And um, so I, I graduated university a bit early. So I graduated at 19. Um, and then, so I'm 27 now, and I've, you know, I, I've done projects in different sectors. I've, I've started managing people, I've started managing projects, and I've also got um, involvement in the industry at an extracurricular level as well. So just, I, th I think sometimes you almost need someone else to, um, well, to help you just realise that, or something else to help you realise that, and that um, shortlisting for that award helped me realise that. I personally was really curious to know more about the research report that you were involved in with Osroads. So Osroads is the peak collective of transport agencies across Australia and New Zealand. And a key challenge that road authorities in these countries are facing is how to collect data across their massive road networks in an efficient and effective manner. So traditional technologies often rely on manual inspection methods or equipment intensive methods where vehicles are used to traverse the whole road network and there's often a lot of equipment attached to these vehicles. So we were commissioned by Osroads to identify emerging technologies to collect data on road pavement performance and then to develop and implement an, an evaluation framework for these technologies. We consulted with uh, agencies from across Australia and New Zealand and we reviewed literature within Australia and New Zealand as well as globally. And the big finding that came out of this was that we're seeing more and more technologies such as machine learning or using available sensors on mobile phones to collect data as opposed to using equipment intensive vehicles. But that doesn't necessarily mean that equipment intensive vehicles will get phased out. Instead, we'll probably start to see both of these methods combine where you may, for example, use a low cost method like mobile phone sensors to do a first pass condition assessment and then once you can target priority areas, you may then direct a more expensive equipment intensive methods at those priority areas. So as a result of all of this, we had a research report published um, and we also presented a webinar to practitioners across Australia and New Zealand as well to uh, present our findings from that research report.
technology is coming a long way and being able to incorporate that into really practical aspects. Yeah, is definitely. Really exciting. Yeah. And I think it shows how like asset management, how it can be used to combine that technical engineering knowledge of road pavements and understanding their performance with the technologies that are emerging and also technologies that we anticipate to see in the future. Would you say within asset management you get to experience a lot of practical solutions such as that? Yeah, so asset management, as mentioned before, we often talk about the, the trade-off between cost, risk and performance. So I guess if we define practicality, it's doing things that are effective and efficient. So we don't want to uh, gold plate things, we want to do things that are necessary and appropriate. So having that understanding of how much things cost, which was one of the criteria um, in our evaluation framework, as well as how effective it is, that really helps us understand and, and develop a, a practical understanding of, of the technologies out there and how they actually relate to engineering. Would you say you're quite a practical person naturally or did you sort of have to almost develop that skill a little bit by looking at what your client actually wants, like what the user needs are at the end of it? I think I did have to develop that skill. So I suppose going back to high school again and doing a lot of maths and science subjects, I was probably a, a fairly black and white person at, at that point in time. And then it was only over time that I evolved that or had to evolve that, that more practical understanding. And I think definitely when you get into the workplace and particularly when you work on say the consultant side where a lot of things can be boiled down to cost and, and you're not, um, you don't want to give over service, you, you want to give what's appropriate. Again, I guess if we link that back to the community, because at the end of the day, they're the ones paying for this. So you, you don't want to give something that's going to cost millions or billions. You just want to give something that, that's appropriate and that meets their needs. So yeah, in answer to your question, I think that is something that I had to develop over time as opposed to something that came naturally. You mentioned like the subjects you've done at high school, but where did you go to high school and how did you find that transition to university from there? So I went to um, high school on the Sunshine Coast um, and then for most of the first year of university I was travelling from the Sunshine Coast to university. Um, so I, I did find that transition challenging at times um, and I think there, there were some times where I might have had to sip a few energy drinks as well <laughs> um, in order to stay awake during lectures. So yeah, like to, to be honest I did find that, that transition um, challenging at the start. And I think it's actually when I started getting work experience while studying at university, that I think that provided kind of a whole level, a whole new level of meaning for me. And, and that inspired me to, to get to the end of my degree and get out into the workforce because it, it's when you start working that you actually see the impact of what you're doing. And it also helps you pull all the puzzle pieces together as well and see how you fit into the bigger picture. So definitely, um, yeah, challenging to begin with. Um, but once you put the puzzle pieces together, it, it all works out and it all fits in yeah. in the end. For anyone that might be facing that same adjustment when they come to university, do you have any tips or tricks for them that might make it easier? I think something that I wish I had done more of was getting involved at the extracurricular level. And I think having that would have probably well helped, helped me uh, be motivated and also would have provided me with a, a larger support network. So I think looking back, if I were to do something again, I would try to get involved more at an extracurricular level. I would definitely suggest again, going out and getting work experience. So I think I was probably fortunate in that I was able to get that after the end of my second year, because sometimes it can take a little longer to get work experience. So I think if I was to pass on any advice, it'd be uh, getting involved at an extracurricular level and then also seeking work experience.
For those who have not been so fortunate as you as to get uh, a rotation in asset management, how would you suggest uh, prospective students being able to get into a field such as that? The, the first thing would be to uh, start off with a, a good old Google search because asset management is getting more and more popular and it is getting more and more recognised. So if you can start to get an understanding of the, the companies that work in asset management, that would be the first start. So in asset management, um, you could work, say, in the government side where, where they actually own the assets. Um, you could even work for, say, a, a mining company as well. But also you've got the consultant side where we provide advisory services essentially to um, governments or private clients. So I think that's, that's where you would start with. And then if you can get an understanding of the companies that, that do actually work in asset management, then I would suggest reaching out because not, not all companies will advertise their positions. But if you can um, email their, their HR team, express an interest in asset management, and, but, but do your research because that's the main thing here. Don't send a, just a, a cover letter that you've sent to every other company and, and don't send the same resume that you've sent to every other company. Try and tailor it. Um, to asset management and the research that you've conducted. If, if we're seeing that you've tailored your cover letter or tailored your application and that you've made that effort, then I think you'll stand a much greater chance at getting your foot in the door. A little bit off topic, but we were curious, what does diversity in engineering mean to you? Diversity in its rawest form um, includes, you know, diversity of gender, culture, neurodiversity, etc. But if we ask ourselves, why should we be diverse? Firstly, it's to build a fair, inclusive society. And then secondly, it's to incorporate diverse perspectives. So again, if we're going back to the ultimate um, aim of what engineers do, it's providing services to communities to meet their needs. And in order to understand the needs of our communities and their expectations, we need to reflect the diversity of our communities in our engineering teams. And it's only by incorporating those diverse perspectives that we can deliver uh, what we do in the best way. Do you also see a lot of diversity in the teams that you work in in terms of disciplines? So you st mentioned previously that you do a lot of work in finance and with different departments. Do you think that also assists in delivering effective solutions? Definitely. So in our team, um, we still are mainly engineers, but we do have a large range of engineering majors within our team. So civil, environmental, chemical, mechanical. I think there's an electrical engineer in our team now as well. Um, but we also do have accountants in our team, which helps to provide the, the financial knowledge uh, that we need to do our jobs. And then we also have some scientists in our team as well, including a computer scientist. So we, we definitely do see a diversity of disciplines within our team. And then also with the clients that we work with, you don't even really need to be an engineer to be in asset management, or you could have come through a different career pathway. So I think that along with the, the diversity question that you mentioned earlier, that does really help to deliver effective solutions because again, we need those diverse perspectives in order to develop effective solutions that are fit for purpose. What kind of differences do you see in the solutions you provide for assets that are maybe city-based first, ones that are based in regional and remote communities where you don't necessarily have the same access to technology and services? In terms of the services that we deliver to more remote communities, we definitely have to make that more fit for purpose. So you'll hear things like digital twin and building information modelling mentioned these days. But if you go out to a, a regional community, sometimes what they need is to start with a, a basic asset data set 
because in order to manage your assets, you need to actually understand what you have and where it's located. So I think the big difference there that we're seeing is we need to make sure that what we do is fit for purpose. So developing a digital twin may not necessarily be the best solution for a community that's uh, very, very far from a, a city area and it also has a low population base to pay for their assets. So I think that is the, the biggest takeaway in terms of those differences is that level, level of fit for purposeness that, that you would deliver to each of those communities. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, Ella. Thank you very much for having me here, Lizzie and Christy. It's been great to, hear, uh, to be here and to um, share my experiences and insights. Um, and I really do hope that, that your listeners do get something out of uh, what I've said today. Don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast to stay up to date with our current episodes as they are released for season two. Thanks for listening.